All right, so today's text explains what Jesus is after in chapter 21. Why did Jesus appear for a third time to Peter and to these other disciples while they were fishing? They probably didn't have reels back then. While they were, I don't know, fishing (laughs) on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The answer is that Jesus is far more than a mere provider of bread and fish. Jesus is after something in Peter. And because he's after something in Peter, he's after something in you. And he's after something in me. Jesus' desire is that there would be no obstacle between you and God. In fact, there would also be no obstacle between you and his body, the church. But that's a sermon for a different time. This is why he took on flesh and died and was resurrected. His life and death is the power of God in our lives to remove those obstacles between us and God. So we saw Jesus begin this last week, right? Jesus put Peter in a similar position as to when Jesus first called Peter and Andrew and James and John. And then Jesus sat Peter by a charcoal fire that also put him in a similar position as when he denied Jesus three times. Today, I pray as I've been praying for you all week, that you will have a similar experience by which Peter had today. The way that Jesus worked in Peter is still the same way that Jesus works in us. So today's proposition introduces three essential ingredients that answers what Jesus is after in us. Let's take a look. God works repentance and reconciliation into a person so that they can return to loving Jesus and living out his purpose for life. Those are the three things. We acknowledge Peter fell short during Passover, right? (laughs) He failed the test. There is an obstacle right now between Peter and the Lord Jesus. But God does not leave Peter this way, which means there's hope for you, there's hope for me, right? (laughs) Jesus appears on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and begins this work of Peter's return to what life is really about. There's something far more engaging, something far more satisfying than just fishing with his buddies while waiting for God to move. Here at Heritage, we have tried over these last seven years to be crystal clear and utterly precise about what human life is truly about. Life is not about you, and life is not about me. It's not about your things, your activities, your people. Life is Christ. And Paul says when life is Christ, death is gain. Life is loving Jesus and living for Jesus. So even though we are Christians, we also acknowledge we are never going to be perfect at this. We'll talk about this in an upcoming Wednesday night. God has given us a new heart and a new spirit. We've looked at this at Gather. That's the work of regeneration. But we are still wrapped and human flesh that has its unique desires that's for me and for you. This means that all Christians, it doesn't matter if you have so many letters after your name or not, PhD this, all of us get out of tune with God. I want you to look at William's guitar for a moment. We've seen this guitar so much over the years, right? I want you to take a good look at it. This guitar has how many strings? It has 
six strings, right? And each of these strings are precisely tuned to play certain notes. E, A, D, G, B, E. Now, this is not a guitar lesson, but I want you to understand the point of what we're talking about with in tune and then out of tune with God. Each of these six strings have been tuned by our worship leader to play certain notes. And when those notes are played in concert with each other, it makes a beautiful sound, right? We love our worship leader playing guitar here to Heritage, right? I thank God for that because I've stood on the stage in the past as a college student, as an intern at another church, and played a very similar guitar, and people in this room hated it. Not literally in this room right now. People who once stood in this room hated it simply because I played a very similar instrument. I'm thankful for your heart for our worship leader, this family. That's not the point of today. One of these strings right now, though, is not playing the precise notes that William intends for it to play. You may not be able to hear it. William probably noticed it. I've noticed it. It depends if you have the ear to hear. And that resonates with Jesus often says, especially in Revelation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There are several reasons for this. One, the humidity in this room has always affected acoustic guitars and its strings. I have probably spent thousands of dollars buying strings over the years because it's broken in this church. William has the same frustration. The tension of the guitar also contributes towards this. There's a healthy tension that actually makes this guitar sound so beautiful, but then there's a tension that causes it to break as well. Also, how William played the guitar over the last 20 minutes affects how the strings sound. And God says today, you are like that string. Peter is like that string. I am like that string. And just because Peter's a Christian, and I'm a Christian, and you're a Christian, does not mean that you stay perfectly in tune all the time. We have two major impacts to our tuning with God, our sins and our sorrows. Sin made Peter out of tune with God. So Jesus moves in the cross and then in the moments after the resurrection to put Peter in a position to retune him. And Jesus still moves like this in us to retune our lives. There are some today present and maybe who decided not to come today who needs to acknowledge that their love for Jesus has grown cold. In essence, they are out of tune with the pitch of God. Throughout our lives, God is going to work through his son. He is going to work through the body of Christ, the church, and he's going to work through his word, the scriptures, as the three main ingredients to retune our hearts to sing his praise. And God uses today repentance and reconciliation to retune our hearts or to return us to the purpose that Jesus has intended for us, which we will get to in our pivot. Now let's get to our first point. All right, here we go. We're going to see in verses 15 through 17 that Jesus puts Peter in a position to repent and then be reconciled with him. What you need to see today is that God puts Peter and you and me in a position to experience repentance and reconciliation. 
Repentance and reconciliation are God's work in us. We are recipients of it, just like many other things in this process we call salvation and the Christian life. You see, if it was up to you, if it was up to me on our own, you and I would never repent with God. We would never reconcile with God. I mean, sometimes we have issues. No, we have issues reconciling with people on earth that we claim to love. How much more the God that we cannot see and touch and have to see physically. We would never acknowledge on our own that we are living less than God's best for our lives. Now remember C.S. Lewis here. The ultimate reason is that you and I are far too easily pleased. You see, you and I love making those mud pies of our own inventions. So it's whether another Christian or the church or the Holy Spirit and through his word reveals to you the offer of the holiday at the sea, you're like, no thanks, because what I'm building for myself, my own mud pies are better than anything that you can offer me. You and I are too easily pleased. Therefore, God must move first. And we see Jesus do this in Peter. And ultimately, we see Jesus do this with him taking on flesh, his advent, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. All right, so let's get to verse 15. Three verses this morning. Here we go. John writes that when they had finished breakfast, they said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to Peter, tend my lambs. This is an aside. <laughs> but do you notice it says that they had finished breakfast? Not John didn't write the disciples finished breakfast, but they did, which implies that the resurrected Jesus had breakfast. Let's just wonder what our resurrected life is going to be like. Story for another time. There's a gather coming up for that one of these days. But the setting of Peter's repentance and reconciliation are these familiar waters of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus first called him. The setting of Peter's repentance and reconciliation is the same kind of fire by which Peter denied Jesus three times. So verse 15 is going to set up the structure of today's text. And you have to see three things. Jesus asks a question. Peter responds. Jesus gives a command. Do you see that? Jesus initiates. Peter responds. And Jesus gives a reminder, a retuning of his purpose and the goal of his life. So Jesus asks this fundamental question three times. Do you love me? Now, remember, Jesus does not ask questions because he needs to get information. That's one of our motives for asking questions. We don't know the answer. But that is how Jesus is unlike us. Jesus does not need to ask questions to get answers. Jesus is God, which means he has self-existent knowledge. We talked about this on Wednesday night. Therefore, God doesn't need to look into the future to see what you're going to do. That's a misapplication of Western Greek philosophy. Jesus asks questions to put Peter in a new position. This is for Peter. This isn't for Jesus to know something. So Jesus asks, do you love me? And then he gives a qualifier, more than these. Do you see that? And I want us to focus on the word these for a moment. Bible readers have struggled with this for all of Christian history. Because they have tried to figure out who are the these. Because these is a pronoun. What is these meant to point to? You have three options today. Does Jesus mean, Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? That's one. Does Jesus mean, two, 
Peter, do you love me more than you love your other disciples? Remember, like, one of them was his brother, Andrew. James and John, they were fishing partners for who knows how long. So does Peter love the other disciples more than Peter loves Jesus? That's an option. Or does Jesus mean, thirdly, Peter, do you love me more than what you do? Do you love your hobbies more than me? Do you love fishing more than me? I believe that Jesus intentionally leaves the reader hanging here and leaves the question open so that yours and my application can be wide. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes Jesus does not answer our questions to open up our application. It does not ultimately matter whether Jesus meant that a person or a thing is currently obstructing Peter and Jesus. Because Jesus has already warned us that both can obstruct love for God. Remember, back in the Gospels, Jesus said something like this. He who loves father or mother, sister or brother, husband, wife, cannot be my disciple. It is one of the foundational texts that our kindred ministry lays out for you. For you to really process, to be a Christian means that you love Jesus above all other earthly relationships. That's our first affirmation of a church member here. Though we're not perfect, we strive to love Jesus above all other earthly relationships. This is why Jesus also said, don't seek for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Seek for yourself treasure in heaven, right? So it doesn't really matter what the potential answer was for Peter and his obstacle. People and things obstruct love for God. Jesus' question challenges the very motivation of Peter's heart and my heart and your heart. Peter loved people and things more than Jesus. And you are constantly tempted to put yourself, your best interests, or the people in your life that you deem to be more important than church or than God, and other things that you deem to be more important than Jesus, above him and his desires for your life. Now we have to take a look at how Peter responded to this question. And it has to do with the word love. Remember, the New Testament is not written in 21st century American English. All right? It's one of the major temptations, pitfalls, and drawbacks of us as American English readers is to say that Jesus or the writers meant something because that's how we understand and how it's operated today in American English. They wrote in Greek. And you should know by now, there are how many words in, in Greek for love? C.S. Lewis wrote a book with the title. Are there ten words? One, two, three. Oh, church. We need some more Lewis up in here. He wrote a book called The Four Loves, which introduces the four Greek words, because <laughs> Greek is far superior, to convey what we just say, I love steak, I love tisa, I love baseball right? Four words for our one. Two of them are used here. We don't get this because we're reading it in English. When Jesus asks, do you love me? Love is the verb right there. Okay, love is the thing. It's the verb. And the word is agapas, where we get the noun agape. You've heard agape before. Peter responds, and he doesn't say, yes, Lord, I agapas you. He doesn't say that. He doesn't use agape there. 
he uses the verb philo, not philodo. I always think of philodo when I think of that. But where we get like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Both of these words, agapos and philo, are translated to our one English word, love, but they have completely different levels and focus of love here. Remember back when the lawyer asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do you consider to be the greatest commandment? Do you remember that? Remember how Jesus responded? You are to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, strength, right? Guess what word Jesus used there? He used agapos, not philo, and not the other verbs for love. God is working to create agape in his people because that is his love for us. Do you see that? God has agape for you, so one of the works of God throughout your life is to build agape in you towards him and towards his people. Philo is a love as well, but it's an attachment to people. That's what that love is. There's a love that's like, I love that old t-shirt that I can't throw away. That's a different word for that as well. Totally different Greek word for love. This word, philo or phileo, is an attachment to a person. Peter is saying something like this. He's saying, Jesus, I have a great affection for you. I do. I have great love for you. We have a connection. We have a deep bond. That's what Peter is saying right now. But agape is not philo. Agape is never-ending, never-failing love, and this is the critical part, that seeks the good of the loved at the expense of the lover. Do you see that? This is the love that Jesus has for you, and if you are truly a Christian, God is working this kind of love in your heart for him and for each other. Agape seeks the good of the loved at the expense of the lover. That should change how you view everything, especially in relationship to this church. Your pattern of showing up, your pattern of serving, your pattern of giving. If your love is truly that which seeks God's best in others at your expense, what would this church look like, right? It would not look like this right now, which reveals there may be people in here that are out of tune with God. So Jesus asks Peter, and he's asking you today, do you love me with this costly love that seeks love for me at your expense? Now, we know the answer to this. When Peter was in the situation to show the kind of love he had for Jesus publicly, he denied his love for Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's a agape or phileo. He failed the test. So when Peter says, Jesus, you know I philo you, Peter's acknowledging right here, my love has fallen short. We don't get this because we're reading it in English. That's why Jesus is like, do you agapas me? And Peter goes, I phileo you. That sounds totally different. Totally different wavelengths of love. Peter is saying right here, Jesus, I was wrong. I haven't loved you in the way that you loved me. 
I haven't loved you the way you call me to. My love is selfish. I don't want my love for you to cost me anything. That sounds like many Christians even still today. We want Jesus to love us at the cost, his cost of everything. But we don't want to give the smallest of costs back. Now take a look at how Jesus responds to Peter. Does Jesus condemn Peter here? Peter just acknowledged to him, I don't agape you. I phileo you. We don't read any condemnation. We don't read any wrath being poured out. Give me that breakfast back, right? That's how we operate in our love. We retaliate, right? Jesus does not respond like this because Jesus is after something far deeper in Peter. And he's after something far deeper in you. On the cross, Jesus already took upon himself, on his body, the condemnation and the wrath that Peter deserves. When Jesus said, it is finished, very specifically, one of the things that was finished was the wrath and the condemnation for all of Peter's sins. Do you see that? The same for you. If you are a Christian, and the same for me. But because Peter is acknowledging his sin, because right now Peter is repenting, Jesus retunes Peter to his purpose as a Christian. And that's the third part of the structure in verse 15. Jesus then responds and says, here's my wrath. No, no. He says, tend my lamps. Do you see that? See the contrast? He doesn't give Peter what he deserves, but what he truly needs. This is meant to point Peter, and it's meant to point you as the reader back to John 10. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus also said that I have sheep, and my sheep are actually my people, the Christian, the body of Christ, the church. So when Jesus tells Peter, tend to my lambs, Jesus is calling Peter to pastoral ministry. Because Peter is experiencing Jesus' work of repentance and reconciliation in him, Peter right now is being retuned. Peter is rediscovering Jesus' original purpose for his life. Now, that's the basic structure of our text today, and Jesus repeats it two more times. Let's take a look at verse 16. Jesus says to Peter a second time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. So Jesus speaks to Peter a second time. This time Jesus drops the phrase more than these. It's just, do you love me? And Jesus uses agapas again. And Peter responds the same way. Jesus, you know, I philo you. But this time Jesus adds more detail to Peter's purpose. He is to tend the lambs of Christ and he is to shepherd the sheep of Christ. The sheep of Jesus is the church, the body of Christ. So therefore, Peter's call and the call of genuine pastors today isn't to pastor all sorts of people out there. It isn't to pastor other churches, but to the particular flock that the pastor has been called to for that certain time period. And it is important for, for Peter and for any pastor out there to know who is the sheep and who's not the sheep. Because his call is to tend lambs and shepherd sheep. Because sheep 
need a shepherd. Oh, how often Tessa and I giggled to ourselves in Scotland, watching how scared sheep are. Literally, I'd be walking, and I'd just look at some sheep go, what's up, my babies? And a whole flock of sheep, please run over the hill, scared to death. Why? Jesus told us in John 10, they know the voice of their shepherd. And that voice saying, what's up, my babies, was not them. Jesus is returning to his father. Jesus will not be physically present with his people. So he calls out some of his people, imperfect as they are, to pastor in his stead until they die or until he returns. To add on to this, the Greek word that is used right here for shepherd is exactly our English word for pastor. Jesus couldn't be clearer to what he calls Peter too. Despite all of Peter's failings, and despite all of Peter's flaws, Jesus called Peter to pastoral ministry. And even after this point, she, Peter messed up again. We talked about this recently. There was a time on a Wednesday night we spoke about when Paul actually had to call out Peter for something he was doing. So that shows you this is probably some decades after. Who knows? At least a decade. Peter fell short again. That shows that even Peter needs to constantly be retuned. One time, Jesus showed up personally to retune him. Another time, Jesus used Paul to retune him, right? Another person in the body of Christ. Peter needed to experience Jesus' work of repentance and reconciliation in his life. As a pastor, God is going to use Peter to do this same kind of work in the lives of others. And Peter must know what it feels like to repent what it feels like to reconcile with Jesus because God's going to use him to work this into others. Now we see Jesus press in for a third time. Verse 17, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And John adds a detail here. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So Jesus begins the same way. Do you love me? He uses agapos again, but then there's more information. We see that the third asking of this question breaks Peter. Is there any doubt that Peter's broken right now? For yourself as the reader. Jesus just broke Peter. What? I thought the word of God was to build people up, be exciting, be encouraging all the time. Sometimes God has to ruin and scrape to rebuild. And this is what Jesus is doing right now. John tells us that Peter is grieved. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Peter was grieved at the word of Jesus. This means that sometimes Jesus' word is going to grieve you and it's going to grieve me as well. That's why the writer of Hebrews calls the word of God a two-edged sword that is sharper than anything because two-edged swords can go this way and if I'm using it, <laughs> right? If you are out of tune with God, the words of Jesus are going to grieve you. They're going to grieve you. So Peter feels the weight of this question. 
Because Peter knows exactly what Jesus is referring to and why he's using the device of a three-posed question. John says Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him for the third time. Jesus repeated the same question three times to mirror Peter's three-time denial. And I want to show you for a moment where Peter's denial came from. Even though Peter loved Jesus, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus affirmed that God the Father gave him that knowledge. Jesus did something true in Peter. But even though that's the case, even though Peter loved Jesus, followed Jesus, Peter still put himself first. Peter still put his word above Jesus. So I want us to go to Luke 22 for a moment. Oh, man, this is intense. This is intense. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, critical phrase today, strengthen your brothers. But Peter then said to Jesus, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. After the Lord's Supper, Jesus was very clear and intentional, told Peter and the disciples what was going to happen that day. Before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny his relationship to Jesus three times. Peter would deny even knowing Jesus, not even talking about love. But I want you to look at verse 33 again, because 33 actually shows what's going on in Peter's heart. Jesus has told them what's going to happen. And Peter says, essentially, no, it's not. Peter is elevating his word, his ideas. Peter thinks he knows better than Jesus. And I say this often. Don't be too hard on Peter because he's no more or less human than you are. And when you put yourself in a position to see that Peter is worse than you and you are super above him, then that is where religious hypocrisy comes from. This isn't only Peter's problem. It's my problem, too. It's your problem as well. During the Lord's Supper, Jesus told the disciples that he would be betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, buried. And on the third day that he would rise again. And verse 33 is Peter's response to all of this. Peter is already in denial about himself. When you elevate yourself, when you elevate your thinking above God's, that's not how I'm going to take the Bible to mean. When you elevate yourself, you are living in denial. In verse 31, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded permission from God to sift Peter like wheat. These words should be reminiscent of Satan's words to Job. We actually went through that as a church family together. We went through the book of Job as well. I've laid a pretty good foundation, I pray, over these last seven years of exposing you to the text that you need. We pray God bless in whatever may happen in the days to come. Right? This is Job 1 again. 
Satan asks permission from God to sift Job. And Satan is asking permission again from God to sift Peter. It's a whole other question if Satan still does this today. There should be a gather for that maybe one day. Job was the prime example of a God follower in ancient times. Peter is a model for what God does since that point on in Christians. Like Job, for some reason, God the Father gives Satan permission to sift Peter. Now, sifting is a farming term. For us today, it's also a baking term. But I want to focus on the farming for a moment. As farmers sift wheat, Satan wants to sift Peter. Farmers sift wheat to separate the edible from the inedible portions of the grain. Satan wants to sift Peter in hopes of separating Peter from God. That's his motive. Remember, in John 10, the Good Shepherd chapter, Jesus plainly said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I think that's pretty much summarizing what Satan's sifting looks like. But Jesus promises also in John chapter 10 and also in Romans 8 through Paul that there is nothing that can separate the Christian from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's one of the reasons why I love Romans 8. God uses Satan's sifting of Peter, not to separate Peter from God, but to begin to separate Peter from his sin, right? Because God always foils what our enemy wants to do. Satan sifted Peter, though, and Peter denied Jesus three times. It happened. But even before this happened, Jesus promised the experience of repentance and reconciliation. Jesus tells Peter, I have already prayed for you. And this means that the prayer of Jesus is more powerful than the sifting of Satan. Peter will be sifted. Peter will deny Jesus. But Peter's faith will not fail. Reminiscent of the Psalms, like Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burdens on the Lord. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But I want you to look at this phrase in verse 32. Take a look at that again. There is a phrase that Jesus says, when once you have turned again. Do you see that? That's repentance right there. To repent means to turn around. Repentance is seeing and feeling that the direction that your life is going in is in the wrong direction. Repentance is the work of God in our lives to get us to stop, to consider that direction, and to turn around. Look at what Jesus tells Peter to do when he turns around, when he repents. Jesus tells Peter, when this happens, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen them. What does that look like? It looks like our text today. John 21, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Jesus says and does all of this, even though he knows that Peter will deny him. A Christian has been tuned to a new melody, the gospel. Our hearts have been tuned to sing God's praise. But even Christians get out of tune. We get our priorities messed up. We go back to thinking it's about me, my stuff, my suffering, my hurts, my people. And when we get out of tune, 
God is still present. Not for wrath and condemnation, because Jesus already took that, but to retune our hearts. And God will constantly use repentance and reconciliation to do this. Let's get to our pivot. Today, the call is for you to feel. Feel for the first time or feel again. Feel the weight of repentance so you can return to loving and living for Jesus above all things. It isn't only Peter who gets out of tune with God. It isn't only Peter who loves comfort more than Christ. It isn't only Peter who puts himself above Jesus. It isn't only Peter who puts other people and other things, hobbies, fishing above Jesus and what he called him to do. This is your problem as well. This is my problem too. Jesus uses Peter to show us what he will do in us throughout the course of our lives when we get out of tune. When we love ourselves, our people, our things above Jesus, his purpose, and his people. Jesus will put you in a position to return to loving and living for him above all things. Your flesh will tell you, don't do it. Don't open yourself up. Don't go. Because you're going to get the wrath. You're going to get the judgment. And Jesus says, no. You're going to get that feeling of a weight lifted when you do. Jesus uses repentance and reconciliation as the tuner to get our hearts back in step and on pitch with God. And that's what our pivot is about today. But before we can return, we must feel, whether it's for the first time or again, the weight of repentance. Remember, Peter was grieved when he heard Jesus speak for the third time. Peter's grief was an acknowledgement of his sin and how he fell short during Passover. This means that repentance is a mark of the genuine Christian. Real Christians are repentant throughout the course of their lives. Repentance is an essential feature at all stages of the Christian life. That's why at Gather, I believe that God sovereignly is having us take a look at the topic of repentance this Wednesday. And we're going to look at David, the king who loved God and followed God with all of his heart. American Christianity has taught you that repentance is only present at your coming to Jesus, right? There's an altar call at the end of a service. That's why we don't do altar calls. I want you to sense that there's a difference between the American Christianity of the past and what a biblical church is supposed to be. That's why we don't do them here. But in churches past, there's an altar call. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, right? And you come up and say, I repent, I was wrong. And then you never do it again. You never acknowledge you've fallen short. You never acknowledge that your life is showing you're more important than Jesus, right? American Christianity has taught and done a disservice to Christians here in the West. Repentance is a normal feature, yes, of coming, but also of staying and growing as a Christian. So the question I have to ask you today, Heritage, is this. When was the last time that you felt the weight of your sin? Not at what it cost you. We're good at that. But what it cost Jesus. Because that's agape. 
Agape seeks the good of the loved at the expense of the lover. The answer to this question gives you a clue, I believe, whether you're a Christian or not. Because there is no such thing as a Christian who is unrepentant. Because we live in a fallen world, and we build relationships with fallen people, and we are still wrapped in human flesh, we are going to continue to fall short all throughout our time here on earth. We are going to get out of tune with Jesus. Jesus will use repentance and reconciliation to return us to pitch. I should show you for a moment how a string sounds when it's out of pitch, and you tune it, goes, and you're like, oh, this sounds like, it sounds sharp. It sounds distinct, right? That's you on a spiritual level. And I want to share two texts today with you to help you see so that you can feel the weight of the joy of repentance and reconciliation in Christ. First scripture is 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But, here's the contrast, the sorrow of the world produces death. This verse is all about repentance, what it is, how it's worked in us, and how it is different from the world's experience. And we see that God's, it is God's will to use re- sorrow in your life. I thought Jesus took on my sorrows. Yes, you do not get to feel the final cost of what the enemy would want to do with you in your sorrows. You don't get to. Jesus experienced that. But our Father still uses our sorrows today, Paul says, to produce something in us. So there's even something joyful in our sorrows. God produces repentance in us through our sorrows. So therefore, Christians should not be out there pursuing sorrows. But on the other hand, when it is clear that the Father is allowing sorrow to come our way, we don't try to escape it. We feel it because God wants to produce something in us by it. God wants us to face our sorrows because he uses that sorrowful experience maybe to produce repentance in us when we need it. Paul tells us there's two kinds of sorrows today. Do you see it? The first one is godly sorrow, and the second one is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorrow. I'm not going to diminish that the world, all the world out there that's non-Christian does not experience sorrows. They do experience sorrows. But worldly sorrow is a sorrow for something that they have said or something that they have done. Worldly sorrow is being sorry for something you said or did because of the personal cost to your life. I really messed up. I'm going to lose this relationship now. I'm going to get demoted at work because I messed up. Me, me, me. That's worldly sorrow. You're only sorrow and sorry because of the personal toll it takes on you and yours. Worldly sorrow is never sorry for what they said or what they did and the toll it takes on the Lord Jesus. 
That's how worldly sorrow is different than godly sorrow. Because of this, worldly sorrow will never produce biblical repentance. That is why that person does the same thing over and over again. Why are they keep doing it? Because they're experiencing worldly sorrow about what has happened and not godly sorrow. Paul says godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, which leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to life. To be a Christian, therefore, means that you have felt godly sorrow. You know what the wounds of our Lord feels like. To be a Christian means you have felt godly sorrow, meaning you have been broken, not because of what your sins and your words and actions have done to you and those that you love, but because of what it cost Jesus. That's biblical repentance. Worldly sorrow in the final analysis is about you. In the final analysis, godly sorrow is about Jesus. It's not about you. And only the Christian can experience godly sorrow. God produces new life, new purpose, and a new direction in our lives through repentance. And this doesn't merely happen at salvation when you walk down the aisle as a five-year-old at a VBS. God continually does this throughout your life to retune your heart to sing his praise. To be a Christian, Peter, myself, yourself, we all have to experience the weight of our sins. Because we're sinners. We fall short. And in our sin, Jesus moves to put you and me in a position to experience joy and newness again. John doesn't capture, can you imagine the emotion of the moment when Peter first acknowledged, I royally messed up, and Peter didn't experience the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, but instead he's reminded that Jesus already took on his condemnation and took on the wrath that he deserved? What do you think was the emotional response? I believe that it was joy. And it's still the same today in you and in me. Let's take a look at our other verse now. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Paul says that all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And here comes the new purpose. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is all about reconciliation now. What God works into those who experience repentance God works reconciliation into our lives through Jesus. The brutal truth is this. God must and will give a full reckoning for sin. If he did not, he would not be just. And if he did not, you and I would actually have no ability to trust in any judicial system on the planet. It all derives from God being a faithful, righteous judge. All sin will be and must be reconciled. And God reconciles sin in two ways. At his coming judgments, at the eschaton, 
or through the cross. All sins are going to be reconciled in one or two places of time. God reconciles all kinds of people by not counting their sins against them. And this should wake you up right now, church. Think about it. What relationship do you have in your life right now that does not count your mistakes against you? I will go so far to say I don't have a single one. And my wife and I have a great love for each other. But it's not Christ's love. It's perfect. No one fully does not count our sins against us. Right? What an occasion for joy this morning for sobriety, for alertness, right? Jesus already reconciled our sins on the cross. God reconciles us to himself through Jesus. In this reconciliation is a return to our purpose as strings are meant to be tuned to play notes and chords. You too are meant to be tuned for purpose. And Paul gives to you One of the many purposes why your heart still beats today. One of many. And that's another occasion for joy. That you're not derelict and just done with. You're not less than. You have purpose still today. One of them is this. Ministry. Paul specifically names a ministry of reconciliation. God reconciles you through his son so his son can use you in the lives of others so they can be reconciled with God. Do you see that? Paul calls the Christian to be an ambassador. Long before the United Nations came up with this applicable idea of being an ambassador, this was a present topic in Christianity long before this. So anything you know about an ambassador gets its derivation from the Bible. Ambassadors represent, goes on behalf of somebody else in their stead. The Christian is an ambassador, Paul says, for Jesus himself. We are ambassadors to the people that God has put into our lives. To be an agent of reconciliation in their lives. But here's the thing. You cannot be an ambassador for something that you have not authentically experienced yourself. Our country set up the idea of ambassadors. There's ambassador to all these different countries because that particular person knows the vision of what the president wants so well that they can articulate it, speak it, and work towards it when they are away from the president. That's what makes good ambassadors. You're an ambassador, not for the United States of America, but for the King of Kings, who first reconciled you to himself. What a greater joy than being an American citizen. But you cannot be a Christian, just like you cannot be an ambassador, if you have not experienced firsthand the weight and the cost of your sins to the Son of God. So how do we move forward? I think the way to move forward is just to look back for a moment, just for another moment. Look back now, Heritage, and ask, have I truly experienced repentance? Not worldly sorrow. Just because you got caught, right? And you feel bad and you continue to do what you want to do anyway. Not worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Because this clarifies whether you truly are a Christian or you're just doing religion. If you have not felt the weight of your sins 
and what it costs Jesus, not you, then you may not be a Christian. If you have felt a weight of your sins, the next question I would ask is something like this. How long has it been since I last experienced the weight of my sins? How long has it been since I last experienced what my life has cost Jesus? You know, that's the ultimate reason why we sang Jesus Paid It All this moment, this morning. Why our worship leader selected that song for today. So you can praise the one who paid your debts. You sang it, but did you experience it? That's the difference between religion and Christianity. Many may have sung it this morning. But few maybe experience the weight of what rolled off your lips into melody. In essence, I'm asking you to be strong enough with the strength of God to ask, how long have I been out of tune with God? That's what I'm asking right now. I'm asking you to ask your soul this by the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may ask, Pastor Joe, it's been so long. I can't tell the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. I've been doing worldly sorrow for so long, doing the lip service to the person confronting me. I'll change. I'll stop doing this. I'll put it away. I know it's destructive. I know I'm destroying my body. I know I'm destroying my marriage. I know I'm destroying my family. And you just keep doing it anyway. So you're stuck. And you can't tell the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow anymore. You've been playing with mud pies for so long you don't know where your skin ends and where the mud begins. The difference is Jesus. The difference has always been and will always be Jesus. Because there's not a single non-Christian on this planet that when they acknowledge they fall short, they don't think, what did my life cost Jesus? No non-Christian talks like that. Do you agree with that? No one talks like that. Save the one that God has worked in. They always think, I'm missing out. I have to bear the cost. It's taking the toll on me. Worldly sorrow, me, 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 me. Mine, mine, mine. Godly sorrow, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I pray that heritage will be and will continue to be a haven for you to experience godly sorrow and repentance. It doesn't matter if there's two or 200. The goal of the church at 15310 Mooresbridge Road isn't to fill a room, but to fill the Christian in the room with God's purpose to send them out. Okay? That's why we are here. So it doesn't matter if there's just two here today. And I pray that heritage will be a haven for you to continue to experience godly sorrow and repentance. I pray that our gatherings together will be a time where God produces something in you. Our gatherings are meant to be a place where you can acknowledge, hey, I just strummed the guitar of my life and I'm out of tune. It's okay. Our gatherings are meant to be a place where God can move to tune your heart again. Why? Because one of God's many goals for why you are still alive 
is that you would be his ambassador to the relationships that he's put into your life. That's why. You are meant to go. Build relationships. Don't bring them here and expect the church staff to do all the Christianity for them. You go out. You build the relationships. You live well for those people that God has placed into your life. They are meant to see you out in everyday life. They are meant to see you be confronted and be confronted and challenged about all of their assumptions of cultural Christianity, thinking that's real Christianity. God wants to use you as an agent of reconciliation in the lives of others. So the final question I have to ask you is this. Is God working any of this in your heart today? Or you want to keep doing the mechanics, the same cycle, rinse and repeat? Is God shaking you with any of this? Has God put you in a different position to see Jesus and to see what your life has cost him? Or are you loving and living for yourself above all things? Are you out of tune and are you playing, strumming for yourself? If you are out of tune, it is either because of sin or sorrow. And you know that sin is in the way, but there has been no change in your life. There has been no repentance in your life. There has been no weight of, this cost Jesus everything. And you know, sorrow is in the way. If you know that you once felt that, but right now, you can't feel anything. God works repentance and reconciliation into you so you can return to and experience the joy and the satisfaction of loving and living for Jesus above all things.